set in an alternate history where masked vigilantes are treated as outlaws, Watchmen embraces the nostalgia of the original graphic novel of the same name while breaking new ground of its own. NPR calls the limited series a masterpiece, nominated for 26 Emmys, including Outstanding Limited Series. Nicole Cassell won a DGA Award for Dramatic Series earlier this year for directing the first episode of HBO's Watchmen. It's summer and we're running out of ice. And you can find her back at the Primetime Emmys this season where she's nominated in the, in the Outstanding Limited Series category. She's with us today on Crew Call. First of all, rewatching Watchmen is just sublime. I mean, I, 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 for for our interview, I rewatched, of course, the pilot, as well as um, your. I, I rewatched It's Summer. We're running out of ice. The pilot that you're nominated for, and then I also watched the other two episodes you directed: Episode Two, Marital Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. And episode eight, uh, the sublime, a god walks into a bar. And let me tell you something: I'm going to rewatch all the other episodes. Yeah, that's yeah. how just amazing it is. Um, my first question to you is: you know, when you and Damon were talking about, here's the thing: when the first, when Zack Snyder made the movie back in the early aughts. I remember, you know, Hollywood kicked around this material for years. And it w- I think there was always this concern, how do we make it and not upset the fans? And Zach, um, and, and there was never, ever a perfect way to bring Watchmen to the screen, just given how wide and epic it was in the multi-layer, the multi-layers of the storylines. But Zach did this thing where he was very, very specific and literally emulated the panel straight out of the straight out of the graphic novel. And I was wondering when visually, when you guys were talking about this, how did you strike a tone between, hey, this is our thing and paying homage? Yeah. Um, well, first and foremost, I'd say I read Damon's script having not read the book and knowing anything about it. And I, um, other than, you know, I'd flipped it open, seen those vertical panels. And so when I read the script and I called Damon to start talking about, you know, how I would see it, um, you know, I literally read and see the material play before my eyes and the references immediately for me were uh, the conformist um, and Children of Men, <clears throat> Amelie, Wong Kar Wai. I just saw it. And so I saw an original thing because it wasn't embedded in, you know, straight from, I wasn't coming out of having read the book. I've never seen Zach's movie. I just, because I hadn't, I, I just felt I shouldn't in order to just stay true to this version um, and then 
once I came on board officially and then I did a deep dive into reading the book, studying the motion graphic videos that have been made. Um, then I took on looking for ways to pay homage to the book because it's such a masterpiece. And with this fan base, I knew Damon was going to 100% take care of the Easter eggs on the story level. And, um, and so I just went into the books to look for frames to reference, um, from framing to lighting to props, you know, putting owls everywhere we could, you know, um, certain books. I mean, there's, there are Easter eggs everywhere beyond the story plot that connects to the book. And that was all because, you know, out of true respect for, for the fans who are so passionate about it, wanted to give them the presence. The, the other thing is, first of all, and we'll talk about this more throughout, throughout the, the episode, but how you straddle genres is just amazing. Mm. I mean, what can't you shoot? You do action, you do Downton Abbey. It's meaning like the Adrian Veidt scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, you do World War II Germany. Yeah. Uh, just amazing. But that opening scene, 1921, the Tulsa Massacre. Tell me about this. Did, what a visceral uh, wonder. I mean, it just, it, it's, it's an uncomfortable scene, and I don't mean that in a bad way. You feel like you are in the middle of this. Yeah. And you feel the pain and the atrocity going on, and the bullet holes going through the, the, um, the box in which he's hiding. Tell me about, tell me about just staging this entire opening. Mm -hmm. uh, was, did you, I mean, did you storyboard everything in the entire episode? No, not the entire episode, um, but definitely that sequence. Um, I mean, that sequence was, uh, you know, that's, that definitely took up the majority of our pre-production energies and focus and um it was i'm so glad to hear everything you just described because that's so was so the goal um to really put ourselves in those in the shoes of the boy in the eyes of the boy and knowing that the things that we he was going to witness were going to be so deeply imprinted on his head I mean, this was not only the launch for the story, but was I knew it was content that was going to play through the whole series. Um, and so emotionally, you know, it's, it's connecting with that little boy, you know, and then and once you're in love with him and you are him, then you're experiencing what he's seen. And, you know, it was really important to do that dance of it had to be as horrific as it was, we couldn't shy away from what it was because it's true. And it was also essential not to stay there any longer than you had to because could not be gratuitous or be there for like sensationalizing or entertainment value. Um, not entertainment value, enter entertainment, you know, just 
you know, it was a very fine line to dance because tipping into gratuity would have been offensive to the, you know, to the ancestors that, you know, to everybody that actually went through it. Um, and then in terms of preparing for it, you know, we knew that the boy was leaving the theater and had a journey down the street and around the corner to the theater. And then, you know, Damon gave me this book, The Burning, that's a true, you know, a journalist story of the events that I read, the whole assistant director team read. Um, and we created the story of what's happening on that street in terms of all the little vignettes. Um, and really staged it like a play. You know, we kind of broke it and we wrote it out so that we knew exactly what was happening the whole way down and where he saw each thing. And then we broke it into three uh, sections, you know, so he did the first section out of the theater and to a certain point, and we would film that with four cameras um, you know, some steady cam pulling him, others extreme wide shot, but then also these hidden cameras to just capture um, moments because there's so much going on in the staging, you know, with the background and the stunts. And, um, and in order to not have to do many takes, because I did not want to ask the cast to go through that as much as possible. Um, and so, you know, we would film out one section and then move down the street and film out that section and, and so on. Um, but you, we could have run it as one, you know, it just was all, all going as we really wrote that play. And, you know, I think that the reason it's so visceral is because I think it's, it all hinges on being in the eyes of that little boy. How long did it take to shoot? We had a day and a half to do that. Wow. And half a day for the garage scene. Wow. Mm -hmm. And, um, and what, a, what a great way you begin with Bass Reeves, who mm -hmm. is a, um, you know, who was, who was a black law enforcement um, a legend from the time, who's, yeah. who, who kind of gets overlooked. Yes. Um, often. And it's, it's such a beautiful way to open up, you know, on a hero. Yes. Um, especially to, especially to the, especially to the young boy. Um, the, um, and then talking about the, um, the homage to Watchmen, like for example, like one shot that I felt was very, very much reminded me of the comic book is when, I believe it's Hooded Justice in episode two is, is, is squashing the robbery in the store and like the gumballs fly. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. that, that is very, very Watchmen. Right. I mean, when it came to those moments, mm -hmm. how, did, how did you find those? Like, here's a Watchmen moment. Visually. Well, it's funny because I wouldn't have thought of that because that's the TV show where we were making the melodrama version of uh -huh. Watchmen. Um, yeah. So that was my way of saying Watchmen could have been that. It's not what we're doing. Ours is much more grounded in reality and in this alternate world. But yes, you, you know, and it could easily be this poppy um, 
wild show. And so I actually wasn't consciously paying homage to, to the source in that one. I was like, I was actually trying to make, to make a comment on our kind of superhero, you know, culture and, uh, and just take it, um, to a kind of melodramatic, just how easily we could tip into melodrama. Um, other shots, you know, there are, there were definitely, um, like in episode eight, when Dr. Manhattan shows up and Vite is at his sitting with the consul, you know, I really studied those scenes in the book and there's some, you know, there's at least one frame that matches and it, it was so fun. There'd be days I'd set a shot and the set dresser would come over or somebody from the crew with the book and say, is that the panel? You know, did you just, and, and they'd be like, yeah, you know, so. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And then for the, um, for the pilot, how long did it take to prep and shoot the pilot? A long time. Um, we had, I think we had 10 weeks of prep. Let's see, we started March. Yeah, we, we were on, I mean, we did a soft prep in February where we scouted, you know, five different cities to, to figure out where we would go. Then by mid-March, we were up and running in Atlanta and filming by the end of May. And, and then, the, whole, the whole series was shot in Atlanta? Except for the... Um, the Vite scenes and were filmed in Wales. David, you gotta watch HBO's Damon Lindelof series, Watchmen. This is a mind-blowing series based on a comic book from the 1980s that I used to read when I was 14. It was about the Soviets, Vietnam, Ronald Reagan, but told through the eyes of these aging retired superheroes who have to come back together to save the world. And now Damon Lindelof comes along and has redefined it for our era and made it a continuation with new heroes like Sister Knight, played by Oscar winner Regina King, and Looking Glass, played by Tim Blake Nelson. But there's other faves as well from the comic books, such as Silk Spectre, played by Gene Smart, and villains like Ozymandias, played by Jeremy Irons. Nominated for 26 Emmys, including Outstanding Limited Series. The, um, and the other thing, and these are, these are basic questions, but it's always very interesting to hear how it works on a show. Where is Damon during the shoot? Because what's interesting is sometimes I hear these stories like they're directing an episode of Mr. Robot and Sam Esmail's beaming in from Zoom, you know, from Zoom. Right. Is Damon on set? Um, for the pilot, he was. But after that, no. You know, and, and like on Leftovers, he was not on set. You know, he, he was because the pilot was written and a room was not running at that point. Um, and, and it was great. It was great to have him there, you know, just because, you know, my do job is to kind of download what is in his head and then to bring it to screen and then to have a real time collaboration was, um, was wonderful. Well, once we went to series, he like leftovers, he was not on set and yeah. 
the um the other thing I was going to to mention is there's this you know the scene where Judd uh gets up and sings at dinner is very sound time-esque and I was wondering if you could could expound on that so here's the funny thing so I was always it was always in my queue to watch Watchmen and when I started when I turned it on the first night when it was airing on HBO it was two-thirds into the episode and it was the scene where Judd's singing around the table and I'm like what's this right and I'm like oh it's Watchmen <laughs> and so and then of course when you see it in the whole scheme of the episode it all makes sense but Tell me about that scene because it's so, it's, 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 it's almost like improvised yeah. to a certain degree. Um, I'm, again, I'm so glad you felt that, you know, it's, I, I wanted, to, I, I chose to have a round table, you know, Angela is from Vietnam. It made sense to me um, that, the circle would be a theme in her house, especially a dining table. And also, you know, the circle was a powerful theme, period, whether it was to reference the clock or Dr. Manhattan's symbol. Um, and then, you know, with Don's performance, we knew he, we wanted to get him up and do the circle. And then Don found those moments with the actors. All of that is absolutely improvised. And, um, and it was just, the scene is designed for us to fall in love with him, you know, for, for deeply. Yeah. Before his demise. The, um, and then the music, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score, uh, wonderfully techno, wonderfully futuristic. How did you, and, and then when you, you, you put in the music, you know, when you select, you know, like the Doris Day song mm. in uh, in episode eight, tell tell me tell me about balancing that. W you know, why it needed to be techno, which I would assume it's because it's mm. in the near future, and then just the irony of the of the pop songs that you would, mm. you, would you would lay out in throughout episodes. Well, full disclosure, I'll say Damon is really, the music is, the handling of music is 100% in Damon's hands in post-production. Um, so all of those choices really are his. Trent and Atticus came on very early. We met them early in prep and they had approached Damon with, with wanting to do this. And um, they, they sent in uh, some some tracks before even seeing any footage and really just res in response to the scripts but also in response to their own love for Watchmen you know and what the book had meant to them so their sound <clears throat> it's one of those things that it's just like it's just what it had to be and it's just perfect but it really came from who they are and their artistic vision uh, or response to, to uh, you know, this alternate cynical world. The, um, as far, and then episode eight, what's so amazing about it, it's like a play. 
it's this it's like a two-hander love story mm-hmm. and talk about that because you what's wonderful about watching you direct it's like you're de- like i said you're dealing with that you know very choreographed action scenes and then there's something like this where it's just the, you're entertaining us in a great way and it's a two-way con- this beautiful two-way you know ping pong conversation yeah, I mean, to be honest, episode eight and that sequence in the bar, I think was the hardest part of the whole series for me to film, you know, and, wow. it, and it should be the easiest, but it was by far the hardest um, to have that challenge. And I told Damon, you know, I, I read that script and was like, oh my God, you know, it's like take a director and handcuff her and then go. Um, you know, two people at a table, not moving, don't show one of their faces, um, go. <laughs> and so we did like me, and when I say we, me and the DP, Greg Middleton, um, very meticulously plan the shots we are going to do. I was very clear on um, mapping out kind of the camera and its progression through those pages and the and the love story and very you know very specific on when i wanted to be behind his head when i wanted to show oh there's a jukebox there um and and then crafting most importantly the transitions in and out of those sequences like to me as you can tell the making the story visually compelling is absolutely essential to me and so that was the challenge, how to make this very limited, confined world still cinematic. Um, and, and it was just, you know, you cannot underestimate this. It, it couldn't have worked without the genius of Regina and Yaya. And you just want to sink in and watch them. And, and Yaya, you know, he saw me put the camera down towards his hands and suddenly his hands are as expressive as a face you know their performances are so good and they worked you know yeah yeah especially it was a lot of work to find that character because it wasn't who he was playing the rest of the season um and talk about an iconic character you know he was playing the original Manhattan. yeah um and then for regina for all of us it was a real joy to go back in time and to meet Angela when she was a little less burned by life and a little younger, a little more naive, um, and to see her softer, like when we go in her apartment, it's the one time you see her in a dress. You know, it was it was a real treat to leave our 2019 for um, a different time. The um. In terms of the um, the tone you wanted to strike in episode one, what was it? Was it because you get our attention immediately and you hold it throughout? Great. Um, I'd say you know, the, the brilliance of opening with that Bass Reeves short film is like, you know, people are turning on their TVs to watch Watchmen. What's more quickly going to say that, hold on, 
you're not going to see what you're expecting, you know. Um, and I, I just love the audacity of Damon and the writers starting the story there. And then, you know, I'd say, again, tonally, the, like you said, it, it, we go through so many different genres. And I said to Damon after I read the script the first time that I felt like I'd read a visual version of the song Bohemian Rhapsody and that that song journeys through all these different genres and should not work if somebody was going to say I'm going to write this song eight minutes long and put opera back to back with hard rock and you'd be like you're crazy and I feel like Damon did that with Watchmen just you know because of exactly going from genre to genre and, and for me it's being true to each scene you know, I, and trusting the writing, trusting the narrative to hold the viewer. Um, but I'm not trying to do all tones in one scene. I'm just being true to that scene at hand and, and grounding them each, you know. And I think for me, it's making a world that is totally believable, whether it's Angela <clears throat> being an awkward mom in a classroom to squid falling out of the sky and that being like having a mini earthquake, just always grounding it. Um, so, you know, I, when I, you know, I don't set out to deliver a, I'd say the tone, I guess then for me is, is sci-fi realism, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, um, but it's, and, but it's ultimately what was most important to me and why I love where the series ends is it's a family story. It's a story of a woman reconnecting with her grandfather and learning about her ancestry. Yeah. Um, and that's what, you know, all the successes of the cop world and the mass and, and all of that is so secondary to me in terms of what I care about and, and that family is to me, what holds is the heart of the whole series. You know, um, Skip, can you tell me how he get, got involved? Mm -hmm. You know, in, in the, um, in the video, you know, when yeah. she goes to check her ancestry. Yeah. That's such a brilliant piece of casting. Damon just asked him. <laughs> it was like, wow. Who should that be? And he thought, Skip, you know, who better then? Um, that was a really high moment for me getting to, I came up and filmed him here in New York City. And it was such a treat. Yeah. What brilliant touch. What yeah. brilliant, brilliant touch there. Yeah. Um, looking, looking back, uh, and I, I, I know you've talked about this, but, uh, Again, looking back at Watchmen now, how does it speak to you? How has it, how has it changed, especially in the wake of the pandemic and Black Lives Matter? How has it just taken on a, a whole other meaning for you? It, it has in the sense of like just being astonished. You know, none of us saw this coming. And even at the beginning of... Um, the shutdown, you know, the first week New York shut down, I just, I remember I called Damon 
and it was people were just starting to wear masks and it was awkward and people wouldn't make eye contact it was it was changing how people were acting and uh and i called damon i said i feel like i'm living in all three of your shows mashed into one <laughs> and i don't like it <laughs> i don't want to be living this um and then and then the george floyd and black lives matter events you know it's just you know, it's just it was there were a couple weeks there where it was really uncanny. You know, Damon was posting like a sheriff got busted with a KKK robe and hidden closet within his closet. You know, the cops in Seattle started wearing yellow masks. Water was discovered off the maroon of Europe. Like just we were just like, stop, you know, because um, and that's that's just kismet i don't i don't even know what that is um but it's actually made me very curious i haven't re-watched it since it aired and um you know and when you're watching it while it's airing you're really mostly watching the audience and like are we gonna make it through this week or not and um now that all of that performance anxiety is over i'm i'm eager to watch it again in this new world to kind of see like you know just to experience it because i think it will feel totally different nicole cassell emmy nominated in the outstanding directing for a limited series category for a dramatic series for watchman's first episode it's summer and we're running out of ice thank you so much for joining us on food call today thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.